Hello, my name is Whitney Blaisdell, and I am a student researcher at the University of Regina. And what you're listening to is a brief summary and discussion surrounding some research I've just completed. The research was an inquiry into how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected play in and around the home for families, particularly in Regina. So this study, I'm very grateful for funding for this study that I achieved from the University of Regina Community Engagement Research Center. This funding was secured in collaboration between Project Play YQR, an organization of which I'm a founder, and the Regina Early Years Family Resource Center. I've been working with the Regina Early Years Family Resource Center for now a couple years to highlight and promote their programming as part of what I do with the Project Play YQR nonprofit. And so we've had a working relationship for a while, and together, when the COVID-19 pandemic hit, and particularly within the closures that we began to see in the community to keep community members safe and the self-isolation practices that were being utilized by parents at home with their children, we wanted to find a way to support the community, and particularly with their centers and with their staff who are typically in you know regular pre-COVID times so good at what they do and so good at promoting and encouraging and offering spaces and programming for play within the community. We really wanted to understand how to be able to support play at home and how to support families using their resources in a in an adaptive way that was research-based. So here we are. Before I discuss the current study, I am going to very quickly just review some of the literature that is available on play, followed by some of the publications and studies that are already coming out about how COVID-19 has affected play and early childhood. So there is a lot of research available on play and on the decline of play, and Without mentioning every study that I've reviewed on the topic, Patrick Lewis is someone who has been attending to this topic in 2017. He wrote a piece called The Erosion of Play that explores how play is shifting and changing over time. And Patrick Lewis actually lives and works in Regina. He works at the University of Regina. And Stuart Brown is another scholar who has been writing and exploring play. And he actually explores the consequences of play deprivation because he has been aware that play has been declining for so long now and it's quite an interesting although a little bit frightening topic to to explore his his writings on and he actually he also has a TED talk if anyone is interested in his TED talk on play frequently cited reasons for the decline of play most frequently include an increased concern for the safety of and a tightened surveillance of children an increased focus on academic learning for children, and this academic learning appears to be sort of taking precedence over time and attention towards children's play, and shifts in the available play spaces for children. It appears that available outdoor space in particular for children is shrinking. 
Karsten in 2005 conducted a study where she explored how play has changed in the same geographic area over three different generations, and she found that an increased supervision of children has been a major factor to play. Gall Lard and colleagues in 2014 found that although many parents enjoyed and fondly remember their own childhood experiences with unstructured play, they're unlikely to allow their children the same freedoms, and it's well-intentioned, but it's also due to their safety concerns for their children. The reviewed literature strongly suggests that play in the primary grade, so that would be kindergarten to grade three, has been declining in large part due to an increased focus on teaching academic skills to children at an early age, especially according to Pyle and Daniels, who studied this work, and they produced a piece in 2017 that outlines how for early children has, has just been changing and really eroding play. To That is a term that I borrowed from Patrick Lewis. Yunin Templeton explored children's perceptions of school in 2019, and they describe how some children perceive school as, this is a quote from their piece, adult-controlled space where children do as they're told until they can play with each other. Some researchers, such as Pramling Samuelson and Johannesson in 2006, blame the decrease in play on a false dichotomy. So that's basically a, a myth. So it's sort of a thinking that play and learning are separate and that these are sort of enemies, they're barriers to one another. But this being a false dichotomy is these researchers, Pramling Samuelson and Johannesson, are saying that that's not true and that play and learning are quite closely intertwined and that they support one another. The increasing early downward push of academic learning on children is sometimes referred to as schoolification. In 2010, Nicolopolo suggested that the extensive research surrounding a child's early years as a critical time for learning have caused a reframing of the early years as a time where early academic learning must take place for children. She supposes that whereas preschool was once offered as a play-based environment for low-income and disadvantaged families to offer their children an alternative environment and some pre-emergent literacy skills and exposure, middle and upper-class parents wanted what they perceived to be the best start for their children and therefore also place their children in pre-K. So Nicolopolo is actually blaming researchers for a large chunk of the decline of play and saying that it is sort of misunderstood but also sort of poorly conducted and poorly promoted research that has led people to believe that children should be spending their early years learning academic skills over play. A final often cited reason for the decline of play that I'll discuss in this quick review is place. The availability and variety of space appears to hinder or facilitate different types of play. According to Aitken, in the mid-90s and in 2020, space to play for children has been declining, and they suggest that this decline affects children's ability to play and therefore the quality of their lives. Valentine and McKendrick, way back in 1997, found that the area outside of a child's home where they might play had been increasingly shrinking, and they supposed that already only in 1997, the space that children would play around their homes had shrunk by about 60% than was available for the generation before them. In 2005, Karsten found that play was shifting from outdoors to indoors. She describes how children having their own bedrooms children infringing upon living room space to play and what is now seen as families having an entire room in their home that is dedicated to children's play are relatively recent trends and that these trends are supporting indoor play over outdoor play and are contributing to an increasing shift of play from being an outdoor to an indoor activity. This is also 
going back to the surveillance of play, children are playing more frequently indoors and are more frequently supervised by their, their parents. All of that being said, it appears that children are still expressing a preference for outdoor play. According to both Burke in 2005 and Sanseter in 2007, children prefer to play outdoors than to play indoors and consider outdoor play spaces as greater facilitators to their play than their indoor play spaces. Powers and colleagues in 2020 found that visitation to natural spaces does facilitate play and is a major factor to play. Several new studies and publications are exploring how COVID-19 has affected play. Solomon in 2020 is describing how the onset of COVID-19 has created a shift and a reframing away from cost-heavy travel-based sports youth programming, previously popular in the U.S., and towards community-based free leagues focused on inclusion, participation, and fun. Paul in 2020 describes how preschool teachers are embracing play as a distance learning tool and have been educating parents on the importance of play for children's learning. Scholars such as London in 2020 are pleading for recess to be maintained throughout the reopening of schools in order to support student and staff healing and wellness after a form of what they call collective trauma and stress due to the pandemic. Hadani and Vey, also in 2020, suggests that, this is a quote, even in the best of circumstances where schools are implementing distance learning, children need options to move, create, and connect with others. I'm now going to very quickly just explained the method that I used to conduct the study and how I analyzed the data. The research that I, the method that I used surrounding this research and to conduct this inquiry is the same as my master's thesis. So this is only the second study that I've done. And so I used what is called grounded theory for this work with a tiny bit of autoethnography. So grounded theory, this is a qualitative study. So we're not, you're not going to get a lot of numbers and statistics from a qualitative study. It's an exploration of a topic you, how I've approached this grounded theory qualitative study is without sort of an idea in mind of what the findings will be. So it's a completely open exploration of a topic. So what I've done is conduct 10 in-depth interviews with participants who were willing to sit down and have a long discussion with me. Typically, the conversations were between 60 to 90 minutes, and then I've recorded those conversations, transcribed them, and then printed them out and applied a code to almost every single line in the data. Other data collection methods that were used in this study were online surveys that were posted online that people could respond to and the responses were anonymous and polls and written submissions were collected through Instagram and some social media accounts surrounding the PlayYQR nonprofit. And then what you do is you get the codes that continue to emerge and then they start you start to increasingly focus them until you're developing a narrower and narrower set of codes that you can begin to apply to almost every line in the data will fit into one of these codes. Or you just use the codes, in, in my experience anyways, that most frequently came up. Not every single line will fit into one of those codes, but you start to see some real patterns emerging. And then as you're doing this work, you are still inquiring. So uh, you already, this is how I've approach this work and the way that I've approached grounded theory is very closely adhering to how 
Kathy Sharma's Applies Grounded Theory. I have her 2014 textbook that's been a great help during this work. So you apply your codes, your codes become increasingly focused, and as you are collecting data, you're also coding it and then using these codes to inform how you are continuing to collect data. So your data collection is actually evolving with your emergent theory because as you're discovering what's happening with participants in your study, you are... It's natural for me, at least, to want to inquire with the other participants in the study as to whether those same experiences are showing up with your other participants and are worth sort of following through on. Um, that being said, I also, when I'm having an interview or a conversation with a participant, and this is something that was recommended by Sharmas as well in her 2014 text, I would often completely abandon a an interview guide that I had written if they're bringing something up that seems interesting or seems to shine light on an area that perhaps I just hadn't considered while I was drafting the interview guide. And so I would abandon the interview guide and follow every path that might lead to a greater understanding of what's happening with play in the home and how to support that, as is the overall inquiry. I'm now going to review the findings of the current study and some discussion and recommendations based on the findings. The findings mainly suggest how highly playful human beings are and that the community interactions that we have in our day-to-day -day lives are very meaningful and that when, when we lose these interactions that we have in our daily lives, this is consequential and that many of the structures that were in place during the pandemic actually also became tools and not barriers to play and some of the the ways that we've responded to being in self-isolation have been have been very playful and so this study more than anything has really affirmed the resilience of human beings and our drive for play and connection two main categories came up in the data and those two main categories were I, I was only studying parents and their children who were six and younger. So this is through parents' perspectives that I was looking at. And so the two main categories that came up were parents supporting oneself, so essentially self-care for parents, and parents supporting their children. A third sort of weaker category somewhat came up, which was parents supporting community, but that was that was very small and I actually almost didn't want to focus on it. I'll discuss why in a moment. So looking first at parents supporting oneself, this was the most critical factor to play was how parents were feeling and what their well-being looked like. To explore well-being with participants and for, for a framework to explore this topic, I used an Indigenous medicine wheel. And the version that I've used of an Indigenous medicine wheel is... Um, Bob Joseph discussed this medicine wheel in a blog that uh, he wrote in 2020. And this version that I was using has, if you can picture, it's if, if you've never seen a medicine wheel before, it's a circle. And inside the circle are four quadrants. It's separate into four equal quadrants. And they are, there's a spiritual, a mental, a physical, and 
an emotional quadrant and they each take up equal space within the circle. And medicine wheel, sort of the the point is to strive for balance between your spiritual, mental, physical, and emotional wellness or your spiritual, mental, physical, and emotional self. And this became jumping off point for very rich and interesting conversations with participants who through these discussions it felt like we were we were both learning about wellness from this perspective and a lot of participants were sharing that essentially their emotional and mental wellness were completely stretched and challenged and overstimulated and because of this they were feeling exhausted and it's also important i feel to point out that the versions of an indigenous medicine wheel that i was looking at are also some of the only models for well-being that I've encountered that are really promoting rest and non-productivity as being equally as important to challenging yourself in each of the four quadrants. And for a lot of people, they would express, and I quote, being at a breaking point. That Those words came up so many times. Parenting from home was very difficult. So again, the mental and emotional wellness was so challenged with very, very little rest. And that appears to have really taken a toll on the participants who were participating in the study. Finally, that came up in the data as sort of the one factor that all the rest of the data appeared to rest on. So this was, like I said, the, the largest factor to play in the home was parents' well-being. From, from what I found from how I did this work, which might be flawed, again, I am only a student researcher, but when that emerged, it everything fell into place after that. So it was like this click was looking at parental well-being first as a large factor. So that became an area that required requires, I would say still, immediate support. I also feel like as we continue to explore and as the conversations and the data collection evolved, it became so clear even even to me, and I, I learned a lot from the study, the importance of play and rest and non-productivity. I feel like I hadn't honestly really realized their importance before to my own well-being, and so I'm grateful for this work and to have to have learned that for me personally. In terms of play and well-being too, it also came up and I personally found this fascinating, but once we started exploring the Indigenous Medicine Wheel and how play was appeared to be connected to wellness and to each quadrant of the Medicine Wheel, play came up as an activity that both challenges and stimulates while also providing restoration to each area of the Indigenous Medicine Wheel. So play was providing challenge and stimulation and restoration to one's physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. And interestingly enough, parenting came up as something that was physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually challenging. And so I feel like this this particular piece of data really demonstrates the necessity of play and non-productivity, non-productivity, sorry, and rest for parents. Especially because, as I've said, these findings so strongly suggested that parental wellness is, in the home, what play rests on. (laughs) 
So parental wellness appears to affect how, not only how playful a parent will feel, and this seems when I'm coding through the data, so critical. So your well-being, you know, how well rested you are, every, everything, how physically energetic you feel, how mentally either free or stretched you feel, really appears to affect not only how you as a parent can be a catalyst for play and can promote and encourage and want play and want to go out and, and enjoy and have that space to do that, but also can affect, appears to affect the participant's tolerance of play. So people would directly say that not only when they're feeling so emotionally and mentally overwhelmed were they not playful themselves and you know didn't necessarily encourage play for their children but that they almost viewed play happening around them with contempt they would limit play and they just wanted quiet and peace in the home and often used electronics to sort of mediate and create this as much rest and peace in their homes as they could. And I want to be clear that I am in no way going to discourage the use of electronics during a pandemic at home for parents who need to have that sense of peace and rest or need to be productive and get work done for their financial you know, not only just success, but even just to maintain their financial status as a working, productive person. So I hope that that isn't interpreted as something that is meant to discourage the use of electronics. Many participants mentioned electronics as being, you know, they would refer to it as a lifesaver, which is um, is probably not saving lives, but is, is certainly creating a space in their homes that they can tolerate. And that seems like an important tool. So parental wellness, as discussed, has come up as a very important factor to play and a factor which appears um, to sort of be a home base for play and a factor that play is resting upon within the home for children and parents. And besides play and wellness, another important factor that came up, another subcategory of parents supporting oneself is parents effectively supporting their work or their productivity, whether someone is um, working from home or outside of the home or not, there still are things that need to be done around the home that aren't playful, but that still actually the ability to do them and to do them efficiently appears to be a catalyst for play. So for example, if one is working, that, that did come up quite frequently, or studying, a lot of participants were either working or studying from home, they discussed as data evolved, and it and it did evolve a lot, so it again this study just so effectively demonstrated the resilience and the adaptive qualities of human beings. For example, throughout early data collection, that was when a lot of the data seemed to revolve around wellness, and a lot of people would continue to talk about their. Their, their challenges and the, the strain that they were experiencing and their fatigue and just feeling overwhelmed and feeling, as I, I believe I already mentioned, at a breaking point. And as I continued to collect data, the conversation was collectively evolving and changing into such a story of strength. And a lot of participants were sharing some really amazing strategies, which I will 
I will try to share for you surrounding how to be productive and how to work and how they had so obviously adapted from home and were so willing to share their experiences and their strategies with me and therefore with with you and so it was it was so generous of them and I feel so grateful for their for their work in that anyways I will I will tell you their secrets so one of the greatest factors that came up as contributing to both play and productivity was actually viewing play and productivity as partners Dr. Brian Sutton-Smith has a quote that I often come across in the play world and he shares the opposite of play is not work it is depression and it, it seems that participants who were adapting their lives to be more productive and playful from home and participants who perceived themselves to be effective players and producers did understand the partnership between play and productivity and they were attending to both their play and their work and often were separating their play and their work. So I have sort of come up with an analogy that if you can even imagine perhaps an elastic band and if you were to continue to stretch and stretch and stretch this elastic band it's going to lose its ability to become further stretched. You can only stretch it so far before you need to allow the elastic band to, to relax and then you can stretch it again. And if you overstretch an elastic band, it it becomes an ineffective elastic. <laughs> and so I don't know if this analogy is, is helpful, but uh, a lot of the participants were sharing that because they were so emotionally and mentally overwhelmed, they felt that they were not able to be effective in their work and they weren't feeling playful and for participants who found some ways to work around this and there's there's lots of different ways that they were able to do this they felt that they were able to be more productive so one method that was brought up quite frequently was if participants had the privilege of having another co-parent or partner or another adult in the home, they would often describe that they were essentially separating their work and play into shifts. And so they were arranging ways for one partner to be responsible for the children and the other partner to be able to have time to dedicate to their work. And they were trading. So this often did involve some completely reimagining of one's workday, involving working sometimes in the evenings and on the weekends because they were taking shifts. But these participants often described that they felt that they were actually more productive from home if they were able to separate their work and play and parenting in this way than they were working in an office or from their normal sort of work location. And of course, this also rested upon the privilege of having an employer who would allow employees to adapt their workday. Uh, some participants described having employers who would say, no, you need to please work during your regular work hours. Please don't be seen outside of your home. Uh, please don't, you know, go to the park. Please don't, uh, please avoid working in a, in a different way other than what is typically required in our office sort of thing. And those participants described often feeling a bit more overwhelmed, a bit resentful of their employers and a lot less productive, it seems, than the participants who had freedom to rearrange their workday to 
attempt to be more productive and more healthy and more attentive to their children during their children's waking and you know of, of course the hours that their children are are needing their attention and there there's no way to avoid giving your children attention when you are in a house with them all the time the strategy of attempting to offer oneself time that is exclusively for work and exclusively for play and parenting was not only used by parents who did have a partner or a co-parent in the home. This was sometimes, actually I would say often, used by parents who perceived themselves to be successful, by parents who who were single parents or didn't have another partner who was physically in the home with them. And these parents often described what is essentially the same strategy. And so what they're doing is communicating with their employer who could or potentially could not uh, offer them the ability to adapt around their workday again. So these parents are, for example, waking up before their children, getting a couple hours of work done early in the morning. And then again, if their children nap using a a couple hours during the nap time and then the evening hours. So they're separating their work and their play. This is of course still exhausting for them because basically all that they're doing is working and then parenting and there doesn't appear to be a lot of time. There is one participant in particular who stands out and she had adapted and found this strategy and implemented it for herself and had the support of her employer and she felt so so proud of herself and it was so lovely to listen to her talk about herself as this strong capable person who was facing such adversity as a single mom working with her children at home during a pandemic and feeling like she was succeeding at everything and so um, it, again, this has been such an amazing study to listen to people do things like that and c- come up with these strategies and share them. And I must say as well that although each each participant that I listened to, and, and there were hundreds of submissions to online polls and social media polls and some surveys, more in-depth surveys that we posted online, but the... The experiences that participants describe are all so unique and each participant had their own unique challenges and some participants had varying levels of privilege in a lot of different ways. But for every single participant, and there are a lot of participants who would share things like, you know, I'm so lucky that I still have a job or I'm so lucky that I still have a partner at home with me to help or someone to listen to or an extended family to at least talk to or um, have children in my home and that at least I'm not alone. And uh, we're so, or a lot of the participants appeared so self-aware and so aware of how their experiences might contrast with the experiences of other people and what other people were going through during this pandemic. And I feel it necessary to add that no matter what the participants' experiences were during this pandemic, it was challenging for all of them, and that it isn't necessary to compare how challenging this was for different people. It, This is and has been and still is 
very hard. This has been an extremely difficult situation. There's been participants who have dealt with being laid off and losing their jobs, and with losing their jobs, losing a, a very important social network that they that they are no longer connected to, and that they therefore are feeling sort of worthless because they've lost a lot more than just their financial income. And there are participants who maintain their jobs and were working from home with their children. And again, uh, no matter what way you, you examine this pandemic and the experiences that people have as a result of it, it's been very challenging. And so a lot has suffered. And in the midst of that, I feel that we've seen so much strength in the community and in the individuals who are in this community and in some of the organizations who are attempting to support people during this pandemic. And if we relate these challenging experiences back to play, it has become so evident that participants are doing everything that they can and adapting to this pandemic to carve out time for play in their lives and that this actively participating in the restructuring of their time and in their schedules and their day to create time for play is feeding their wellness it's feeding their productivity it's feeding their ability to be effective parents and human beings and workers and I, I it appears that play is a tool to so many different avenues in our lives that we try to be successful in and that the framework the, the framing of play as a tool in our lives appears to be helpful and the participants who appear to be separating their work and play appear to be the most successful players and producers so what that looks like at first it looked like they were separating they were compartmentalizing a space for work and a space for play and then the more carefully that i examined the data it was actually that they were somehow attaching some sort of a physical tangible object to their work and so this could be a space for those who were privileged enough to have an office or a space that they worked and that they didn't do anything else in that space other than work became a signal for them whenever they're in that space it's work time and then when they're done they're not in that space anymore and the rest of their space is for play that was highly beneficial but this was not exclusive to people and family members who had a specific space to work there were single mothers who were living in one room dwellings and at least one of them in particular who's standing out was she considered herself to be highly successful in her work and in her play by the time that she was contributing to this study and she described how when she was working she would actually put her hair in a bun and wear a particular sweater and that that was her signal that she was working some participants described sitting in a particular chair in a particular position on the couch while they worked but I found it highly fascinating that participants were describing having some sort of a physical signal that they're working and it was only used by the way when they were working and not when they were playing there's no signal to play it was just this one thing that you do while you work or where you sit or what you wear or how you do your hair and then whenever the 
there is the absence of that thing, you're free to do what you actually would like to do. You're free to spend your time how you want. You're free to play. So compartmentalization was a key factor to being successful in your play and in your work. So those were the three, taking care of your well-being, compartmentalizing your work and your play, and viewing play and productivity as partners. Those seem to be the greatest factors that are helping parents to support themselves. Then the second category, as I mentioned, was parents supporting their children. So in supporting your children's play, what came up as areas to examine were adult attitudes towards play, understanding children to be masters of play, and creating or arranging a playful environment. So the first category, sorry, I guess it's a subcategory, examining parental attitudes towards play. So this appeared to be an important sort of exercise to look at is examining as a parent for the participants is for those who examined whether they really valued play and who took a look at how they feel about play and if they're really encouraging play and if they really want to encourage play, if they feel like play is an important activity worth pursuing and worth encouraging for their children. That was a, a catalyst for play. Also, examining how they feel about their own play and whether they model respect for play in their home for themselves appears to have affected play for their whole family. It appears that those who also took the time, really, it was an act of participation, of organizing and carving out and protecting time for their own play and letting their children see that and saying, you know, this is my time where I do this thing that I enjoy. So right now I'm not spending time with you and I'm not going to do my work. This is important to me. And it, it seems like that was very helpful for, for them and their families to promote play for the whole family. Of course, that's also somewhat privileged. A lot of families didn't, weren't there um, mentally, emotionally, just their well-being wasn't there to want to pursue their own play. Again, if you look at that quote by Brian Sutton Smith, that the opposite of play is not work, it is depression. And that also sort of rang true in this study that it seems like the more sort of mentally and emotionally strained the participants were, the less playful that they were, right? So again, it's privileged to even examine your own attitudes and try and work towards being more playful. that it is hard work. So if it feels like work, it's it's because it is and it's challenging. Some people sort of had mastered that and others are, are working towards it. And important factor to supporting children's play is to view children as masters of play. So this is what, this was a huge subcategory and one that I was, again, fascinated by and that I have to admit through PlayYQR, I don't feel like I was supporting this subcategory well when the pandemic first hit before I had done this study, but it appears that for the participants who really paid attention to their children and had a sort of a child-led idea of play, they felt like they had supported so much play in their home. And one participant discussed how she felt like she was going to be so successful at allowing so much play and promoting play. And she had all these ideas and materials and crafts and things and was on Pinterest. And then she, she s expressed how when she would invite her children to come and do one of these activities that she had sort of planned, 
she was often interrupting their play. And so this encouraged a discussion surrounding play stamina and how we can increase play stamina for our children. Well, appears that the way that we can increase play stamina for our children is just by allowing them increasingly longer chunks of time to play and just meeting them where they're at and trying to offer them more and more time to play. Often, this is a matter of just letting them play, let them play with, as long as they're safe, sort of whatever they're attending to. And often it's not a toy. Often it's not something that is created to support play and it appears that children are very interested in cleaning and in cooking and in doing things that don't seem overly childlike but for the participants who supported whatever their children sort of were interested in doing as long as they were safe and the participants were themselves comfortable with it it encouraged a lot of play and a lot of independence and just time that children could learn to spend on their own independent of other adults and children and this was something that almost all of the participants of the study expressed having a desire for and some of the participants felt like they really achieved and again one of the largest factors it appears is just not on not interrupting children so if we can allow children and if we can sort of respect children as masters of play and allow them and frame them as capable people of conceiving, planning, and executing their play all on their own, then that is an amazing way, it seems, to support play in the home. So again, this is, only, this is still a parental factor. This is still parents supporting play because you're essentially supporting play for your children by allowing them to be masters of play. The third subcategory of parents supporting children's play is arranging a playful environment. And it appears that arranging a playful environment, you can do this with spending very little money, although this, this is a financial privilege for sure. Just having, having a playful environment, honestly, having a, an environment at all that's safe, of course, but safety was the, the number one factor to supporting a playful environment that came up in the data. So this was for parents who felt like their entire home, no matter how large or small it was, very was a safe enough environment for children to explore and be independent in, not alone in, but independent in. That was a, a large factor to play. And when parents didn't feel that they absolutely needed to have their eyes on their children at every second of every day, this was facilitating for play and exploration. And also Importantly, facilitating of parents having their own time. If you can feel like you can, for example, take a shower or sit on the couch and have a snack in a room that your child isn't in, that's important to your wellness, right? And so that is therefore supporting another huge category that came up in the data as being important to play. So arranging a playful environment, first thing you're, or it, it appears that the participants were looking at, those who consider themselves successful was safety. Is the home safe? Another huge factor was, is it easy to get outside? So not every participant who I spoke with had a private yard. That was a huge, huge factor to play was having a private yard. Of course, that's a privilege. For those who didn't though, they still could arrange a more playful environment by having a privilege, but by having 
the necessary gear that they felt was appropriate for going outside. Shoes, jackets if necessary, hats, whatever, and having those available by the door. Some of them talked about how teaching their children how to get ready to go outside on their own was a factor to play. So just trying to eliminate as much friction as you can around getting outside, make getting outside as easy as you can so that it's not this, again, mental sort of burden to just even think about going outside and all the things that you need to do. How can you make those things as easy as you can to get outside and play? Other factors to play in the home. What was what I was looking for? And there was such a lack of conversation and data surrounding toys and playthings. And it appears that children are often what you're describing, what the participants described, is that children were playing with, again, non-play items. They're playing with the broom or they're playing with the pots and the pans or they're trying to fit all of the containers together or they're just going outside and collecting sticks. There was there was such little evidence to support that toys facilitate play. I, for one, found that, found that fascinating, but... you know everybody's different (laughs) um so yeah that was how to support play in the home from a parental standpoint was supporting children as masters of their own play arranging a environment that is essentially minimal safe and makes getting outside easy and adjusting or examining your attitude towards play So it appears that what has happened during the COVID-19 pandemic to play is if you can picture what is essentially a snowman, I have a figure in front of me I'm trying to describe, and at the bottom of the snowman, the, the lowest sphere of snow, is parental well-being. And around parental well-being is also work and productivity, which appear to be factors in your in the participants' parental well-being. On top of that snow sphere, (laughs) large snowball, is the middle snowball, which is a playful environment and parental attitudes. And these two things appear to also influence one another. So they're at tension with one another and supporting one another. That's the second snowball, resting on top of parental well-being and work and productivity. Then the head of the snowman, the top of the, the final snowball, is play. And so play is resting upon first an environment and parental attitudes that support play, which is resting on parental well-being. So it, it appears that we have sort of developed or the participants are expressing that they have seen this hierarchy that's developed and this has sort of emerged through the data. In light of this hierarchy that's developed towards play and this sort of building blocks or snowballs towards play, of course, we keep revisiting parental well-being as being such a critical factor to play, particularly during a pandemic. But uh, I would suppose personally, of course, this isn't, there's no evidence to support this yet, but I I would assume that that parental wellness does support play in the home, regardless of the pandemic. So looking at this, it appears that this is the recommendation that the research would suggest, is that parents focus first on themselves and put as much of their capabilities towards supporting themselves first. If they feel that their well-being is an appropriate level where they and their children are safe, because in some in some instances it appears that 
that it wasn't. So if they're feeling that they and their children are safe, then remaining capacity can be dedicated towards one's children. Supporting yourself is a, at times does appear to be a matter of safety. So it is important that that is so prioritized and really seen as, as an important factor to play in well-being in the home. Next, capacities are going towards one's children. And then finally, if there is remaining capacity, which for so many people there isn't, then that can go towards the community. So of course, I'm speaking in terms of play. So first, supporting your yourself and your well-being. Next, energy is going towards supporting children's play. And finally, supporting community play. Supporting community play appears to look like checking in on friends and family, sending them a text message to say, I'm thinking of you, how are you doing? Maybe setting up a family Zoom meeting, things like that that are, are playful and are encouraging play for other people. Participants, some are expressing that they've either brought food over to neighbors or been brought food or have you know, received letters or notes or text messages or someone calls them every once in a while and how, how important that was for them. And some of the participants expressed that they, however, were not there. They did not have the capacity to support other people outside of themselves and their own family. And that is, I, I mean, I, as a researcher, in my opinion, I suppose, and also, also looking at the data, that is not only okay, but encouraged that if, if you don't have that capacity to reach out to other people, the data is suggesting don't look at yourself first. Next, you can look at your children. And finally, if you do have that remaining capacity, it is meaningful, it appears, and it makes a big difference to the people around you if you support playing community. Speaking of community play, it seems like for, for the folks who were there, one of the neat things that came out of the study is that participants are expressing that for, for one person in particular, she talked about how everyone in her neighborhood who had children and who were somewhat connected actually got together and as a community sort of, sort of decided that they were going to relax their supervision of their children. Now, this is also probably privileged. I don't know what neighborhood they live in, but it didn't appear that they felt that their neighborhood in particular was unsafe. They felt like their children could explore and they were more nervous this participant of how their neighbors would feel if they saw her children out without an adult, although she considered her children to be at an age where that was appropriate. And so they all had a discussion that they were all going to be okay and sort of relaxing their surveillance and supervision of their children together and allowing their children to go together, for example, to, to the park or if other parents were to see children wandering around to kind of keep an eye if they felt like it on children who were in the street because they were going to be without an adult and that was new for this neighborhood and that participant expressed that she hopes that that sort of community take on the safety and sort of community accountability towards all of the children in one's community and not only one's individual children. She's hoping that that does not go away. The study is also suggesting that for nonprofit organizations and community organizations who are seeking to support play, the most powerful ways it appears to support play are to support parental well-being. And that is of course, only for the organizations who have the staff and volunteers who are capable and, and trained to do that, because that is something that requires professional training to 
to implement, but that appears to be such an important factor to play and an important way to support play at home. Another way to support play at home appears to try as, as hard as one can to bypass parental effort in facilitating play. And so facilitating play in the home in some way that does not require a parent to, for example, learn a new skill or sit and do something directly with their child or, you know, prep an activity that's very time consuming or is a lot of effort to to prep and then clean up after, go out and purchase something. Parents seemed to be so stretched thin. So if you can imagine pre- COVID-19, a community that existed where the community itself is central to play and parents and children are existing around this community and play is moving towards families and adults and children independent of one another. So children's play wasn't only resting upon parents prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. They had friends, they had school, they had activities, they had playgrounds, which, you know, during COVID in Regina for a while during the pandemic were closed. They had all these factors to their play that didn't only rest on their parents. Once the COVID-19 pandemic hit and the public response was such that families were self-isolating and there were a lot of closures, children's play began to rest entirely on parents and parents became this filter towards their children's play and parents were also expressing that they perceived themselves to be mentally and emotionally exhausted and overstimulated and already dealing with mentally so much more than they felt like they could handle. And so, of course, this made play very difficult to achieve for some families, not for all families and not for all participants. But so that is a recommendation that's sort of coming out of the study is that organizations try to find a way to support play that is involving as little parental effort as possible. If we wanted to examine how the COVID-19 pandemic appears to have affected the participants' play, it does appear that for the participants, again, everything is resting upon parental wellness, right? So for the participants who did feel that their wellness was strong, The pandemic appears, and this was an unexpected finding, at least from my perspective, to have been in itself, the public response to the pandemic, a catalyst for play. And it is what I've referred to in in the study write-up as a salvation of play has occurred. And play has sort of been salvaged out of boredom and out of lack of other activities to do, out of empty schedules, out of what were previously sometimes described as tense sibling relationships that have been forced to have been rekindled out of learning neighbors' names for the first time and out of playing with a neighbor kid who's five years older than another child. And it's there's sort of been this, this return to what appears to be sort of an old school nostalgic community play that as a 90s kid, I feel I've only really seen a little bit in my childhood, but mostly in in movies that are sort of romanticizing the the you know anywhere between the 50s to the 80s. So this has been a, a very interesting study to have undertaken, and I've been very 
grateful to have had the opportunity to do this work. I feel like, again, I should mention how grateful I am towards the University of Regina's Community Engagement and Research Center. I've also been very grateful to my thesis supervisor, Dr. Mark Spooner, who has attended so thoroughly to my thesis and also offered, didn't offer, I asked him and he agreed to read over and pay some attention to this current study that you've just listened to and was, again, so thorough in his feedback and was so helpful, um, as he always is, and as well towards the Regina Earliest Family Resource Center, who partnered with my PlayYQR organization in securing this funding and has been so responsive and so supportive of this study and again responsive to the emerging data and has done in my opinion an amazing job of supporting their community during a pandemic which is a small feat for that how challenging that work is but also for their staff who are often parents themselves who are working at home and dealing with all of the factors that I've just brought up. So thank you so much if you've made it this far for listening to this. I've never done this before. This was really challenging. Um, I shouldn't say this, but this says I'm on take 79. So I've recorded 79. This has been broken up and pieced together with several different takes by the end of it. But uh, I mean, not several. 79 so um thank you and if you've enjoyed this i or or if you haven't actually maybe especially if you haven't um i i really like to receive feedback again i'm only a a student researcher and i've never um, recorded my voice discussing research before so if you have feedback for me you can get hold of me you can go to www.playyqr.ca and there's a contact form and that is probably the most efficient way to get in touch with me i do read those contact forms and i do respond to them too so it would mean a lot if you reached out and i'm also curious to understand to see if there's any feedback surrounding when i was getting ready to record this i took a look at what's available for podcasts for play and there's not a lot available and so i am playing with the idea of starting and this being one of the episodes of a play podcast that examines play research, not only my own, but also some of the play research that is available and is so important in learning the challenging and changing landscape of play and and, and of promoting play. There are some episodes of podcasts that appear to discuss play very briefly, but they're in this, this sea of podcasts that are about early childhood and learning and preschool and it's very if you were listening to the literature review earlier there's a lot of podcasts that are promoting different ways of learning and, and academic skills for children and so it would be nice to have something that disrupts that message with a message of the importance of play so anyways if you would like to get in touch and maybe you would like to be a guest on the podcast you don't have to be a researcher i mean everybody is an expert on on play right we all have experiences and challenges with play as children and adults so if you'd like to send me a message and invite yourself to be a guest on a non-existent podcast that would be great thank you so much for listening to this if you've made it this far and this has all been such a pleasure cheers